So Money episode 1040, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. Friday, May 8th, coming at you from my New Jersey home. We did it, everybody. We finally moved. After 18 years in New Yorker, I'm now starting life here in New Jersey. And we did it during a pandemic. It can be done. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know a little bit about how we did this, the behind the scenes, why we moved, some of my learnings about the home buying process right now. I learned a lot, let me tell you. But first, why did we do this? You know, it wasn't because of the pandemic, but I have to say that the pandemic definitely accelerated our plans to move. You know, we had been planning to move this spring slash summer and be settled in New Jersey before the start of the school year in the fall. And we started house hunting in early February. We actually made a couple of offers on two homes. We were outbid. It's a very, very competitive spring market out here in New Jersey. And so we were a little defeated. That was uh, probably like, we probably made our second offer in late February. And then... March hit. Yeah, March was a crazy month, right? The first half of March was sort of like living in denial about everything that was happening with the pandemic and then sheltering in place and continuing to shelter in place. And so the pandemic hit. And by early March, you know, honestly, we weren't sure if we should just foil our plans to buy a house. Maybe we should continue renting for a while. A lot of uncertainty, right? I did a whole video on this and I was being very honest at the time. We just didn't know. We were at a crossroads. But a decision was sort of made for us because a house came on the market right around mid-March. It was incredibly awesome. It checked off all the boxes. Um, It was a little too good to be true. And we kind of ignored it at first because I was like, this just can't be real. Like I'm just, I'm going to pretend I didn't see this listing. And also I thought this is probably going to go for another bidding war. I don't want to get involved. And our real estate agent who is amazing, Jody, shout out to Jody Gilardi. She said, just come take a look at it. You know, and this was actually a weekend where it was, it turned out to be the last weekend you could actually go and visit a home in person. They weren't doing open houses. You could come, make an appointment. You had to wear gloves and a mask and the whole shebang and, you know, walk through the house with your family, no one else around. And so we did this and we got back in the car and we were like, okay, maybe this will be our last attempt to purchase a home if it doesn't work out, no big deal. We'll just we'll just stay put and we'll we'll figure things out as we go along. So we made the offer and we got it, which was pretty unbelievable because I just finished saying we were outbid two times consecutively in the previous month. And so we had very low expectations, but um, the sellers were very motivated and we didn't have much competition because of what was going on. We had only one other bidder. So we, we were able to get the house. And then things just started moving quickly from there. We really wanted to move fast on the purchase. 
Uh, we wanted to move sooner than later. Remember, we thought that we would just kind of take our time in the spring and maybe move into the summer and then find a house and then just try to move in before September. Well, now we're in the house and it's May. Um, and we intentionally wanted to move quickly. And the sellers also wanted to move quickly because things are changing fast, right? We didn't want the lender to change its mind. We didn't want to also be stuck in our apartment for any longer. It's hard being quarantined with two small children in a small apartment in Brooklyn where I love New York, but right now it is a not good place to be. It is not fun. It's just a really strange place to be living right now. And it's not the New York that I remember living in. It's not the New York that I wanted to move to. I I, I pray for New York. I hope that it gets better, but right now it's just not the happiest place on earth for a lot of reasons. And 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 really it was because the kids were just also needing space and we really wanted to give them um, some more freedom. We thought this quarantine was gonna be a few weeks. It's turning out to be indefinite. And so we wanted to be in a home where we could stretch our legs and really feel like we were making progress as opposed to feeling stuck, if that makes sense. So some of the positives, besides what I just mentioned, other technical positives of moving right now, we were able to get a very low interest rate of 3%. You're the first to hear about this. It would have been three and a quarter, but the bank gave us what's known as a relationship discount. Just a little tip here. If we kept a certain amount of money in a checking account with this bank, um, they were able to give us a lower rate, a significantly lower rate, 0.25% reduction, which is a lot, hundreds of dollars of savings a month, thousands of dollars a year. You know, So this was worth it. We moved money over to the bank before the closing, qualified for this relationship discount. We consider that a big win. And so, yes, interest rates are lower right now, as I just revealed, but it should not be the leading reason why we buy a house right now. A lot of people asking me, hey, Farnoosh, rates are so low. Is this really the time to buy? It's like you're not buying a sweater, right? You're buying a home, 30-year mortgage most of us are going to get take on. So you want to be sure that you know you have all your other financial ducks in a row, as always, right? Good credit, strong down payment savings, and a secure job. And that last one, the job part, that's the big wild card right now because people are losing their jobs left and right. We just, uh, I'm recording this in the morning on Friday coming at you before the jobs number for April is released, but we're bracing ourselves, right? We are expecting huge, huge staggering, there are no words for it, numbers for the month of April, uh, Economists estimating over 20 million jobs lost in the month of April, which effectively reverses all of the job gains since the Great Recession. And and so I'm getting goosebumps just saying that out loud. Um, banks, as a result, are not being as generous with their credit lines, right? They, I'll tell you, the day before we closed, which was closed on Tuesday of this week, Monday, I got a call from my accountant and she said, Farnoosh, your bank just called me to verify your business and to make sure that it's in good standing. They wanted to know, like, did I go under? Because crazy things are happening. My husband's employer also got several phone calls before we closed, the week before we closed. And so banks are totally spooked. They don't want to hand over a mortgage to somebody who's going to lose their job a month later. And their concerns are justified because that is actually what's happening. So don't buy a house unless you have a job. 
and and don't buy a house unless you think you're going to have a job for the foreseeable future. Um, because if you lose that job, you're still going to have to make that mortgage payment. And yes, there is mortgage. And yes, you can apply for mortgage forbearance, but do you really want to? Do you really want to get into that place, right? That's a really stressful place to be in. It's not plan A and it should, and it's not even plan B. And actually reading about how many lenders are in fact tightening their standards. In some cases, you need a higher credit score than you did before. They want to see that you have more skin in the game. So 20% down payment is becoming expected across the board. It's less likely that you can get a mortgage for a smaller down payment. And yeah, they want to know that you have income. Remember, the mortgage application process takes at minimum 30 days from when you apply to when you get it cleared to close. And so that's a long time right now (laughs) in which you could potentially see income drop, deals go away, job goes away. And so if that does happen to you, your best move is to pause on the mortgage application. And so that's my latest on real estate. For more, check out Wednesday's episode with Elise Glink, coincidentally airing this interview the week that I moved. But Elise is the foremost expert on real estate in this country. She and I have been friends for over a decade, and she has a lot of insights on everything from the mortgage application process, what's happening across the country as far as prices. This is also an area that you can't just make a blanket statement and say prices are going up, prices are going down. It's very much region to region. And here in New Jersey, where we are living, um, it's slower than, of course, last year, but not that much slower. Our lawyer said that she usually gets this week, because it's the hot spring market, on a normal year, she'll get 10 closings in a week. This time, she's seeing about seven. So not devastating. Um, And things are moving, despite the fact that people can't even look at homes from the inside. They cannot physically go inside homes. They're getting virtual tours and buying on spec. Crazy. Um, So people want to leave, I think. That's what's happening, especially in these parts of the outer parts of New York City, where if you thought you wanted to move in 2020 or 2021, you're finding yourself jumping the gun now because it's really not a great place to be right now, New York City. I love New York, but um, if you've got a family or if you're isolated in your house, even without kids, in your small apartment, not feeling comfortable to leave, still an expensive place to live, you've got New York City rent without the New York, it is difficult. And you're looking at the suburbs and you're like, yeah, that sounds great to me. Grass, great. Close to a Target, I like that more affordable housing, check. That's where we're at. And again, check out Wednesday's episode with Elise uh, to learn more about real estate. If you're thinking of buying, and I know a lot of you are because I get at least a few questions a week on this. And actually we have a question. uh, I'll jump to Moomon3 on Instagram, who is 27, living in Seattle, wants to buy a home, but wants to first read up about it and asking for a good book. Honestly, Elisa's book, 100 Questions Every First Time Home Buyer Should Ask. It's a huge, thick book. I think it's in its like on its 10th or 11th edition. When I first started dating my husband, I saw that book on his bookshelf in his house, and I was like, I think we're gonna get married. <laughs> this is a great book. It's got all your questions. It's constantly being updated. And if you listen to her episode on Wednesday and read that book, you should have a lot of your questions answered. 
But before we get to all the other questions, I want to go to iTunes and check out our reviews and pick our latest reviewer of the week who's going to receive a free 15-minute money session with me. And we're going to say thank you this week to Pumpkin Later 1024 who left review five days ago on May 3rd saying that this help this ep, this podcast is helping her with all the financial questions she has during the quarantine. So Pumpkin Later says that for the last few years, I've been getting my money situation in better shape. I've lowered my utilization ratio on credit cards, bought a pre-owned vehicle in cash, spent less money on things that don't matter to me, spending more on the things I love. Your podcast makes me write notes and I love learning things that I can apply to my personal situation. Well, thank you so much, Pumpkin Later 1024. Let's get in touch. You can email me, Farnoosh at SoMoneyPodcast.com. You can also direct message me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. Just drop me a note. Let me know you left this review and I will send you a link for us to find a time on my calendar to connect for 15 minutes and talk about whatever you want. Money, career, kids, life. I have a lot of opinions these days. <laughs> All right. I'm so glad to be doing this podcast with you right now. I have to admit, I usually do this further in advance, this recording. I'm literally recording this on the day that it's airing. It's going to air a little bit later than normal. But hey, um, I'm giving myself an allowance. I'm, I moved this week. I'm short on sleep. It's the pandemic. I've been on time with every other episode of late. This one not so much, but I made it. And I was thinking about doing a rerun. I was like, I can't do a rerun in a pandemic. Nothing is going to like apply. You know, I got to, I got to really answer the questions that are fresh and that have been coming in. And so thanks to everybody who's been sending in your questions. A lot of you have been writing in through the website, clicking on Ask Farnoosh. That's a great way to get in touch. Some of you have been Uh, getting in touch on Instagram, which is always a favorite. So now Julia has a question and she says she discovered the podcast this year in March, in fact. So she's a new listener and she began um, after she started her divorce process. So her question is, what should I do? I'm getting divorced in a pandemic. I have questions. She says, uh, I left my career 10 years ago to care for my family. My husband has been the sole breadwinner as a highly paid executive in biotech. I have not taken the initiative to become financially literate and I have totally trusted my husband to make major financial decisions and investments. I'm now finding myself a single mom of two young children with little equity in my career, totally financially illiterate in a very unsettling time. After the divorce, I will receive about three to $400,000 from the division of our assets. And I live on the coast in Southern California where real estate is pretty expensive. So I wonder if I should hold on to the settlement funds until the economy calms down. I should maybe rent a house, have a larger savings account, or should I take this money, put a substantial down payment on a house to keep mortgage payments lower than what I would pay in rent with a smaller savings account? All right, so Julia, my heart goes out to you. I'm so sorry you're going through this situation. I don't know what else to call it, but you know, so many people find themselves in your shoes, right? You're 
you are not alone. And I'm just really happy that you have found this podcast and hopefully other resources to guide you through through this process. And then even after this process, you know, the financial learning always continues. I mean, for you, I would say first things first, save your money for now. Don't make any quick decisions to buy. I think the most important thing is getting yourself settled and safe and feeling like, you know, you have a grip on things. And so that could mean getting a place that you're renting that's comfortable for you and your family that's not too expensive, maybe close to a family member, close to friends. You want to have a network and resources around you. I think it's really important, especially for single moms right now. I don't know how single parents are doing it right now. Seriously, it makes me stop in my tracks and just be grateful for what I have and stop complaining. Because if I had to go through this life without a partner, with the kids and all the things that are going on right now, I mean, that talk about brave, talk about courage, talk about strength. And you have all of that. So remember that you are heroic and what you're doing is what you're being asked to do right now is not fair at all. But I'm comforted in knowing that you are getting this big settlement. What would make me more comfortable is knowing that this is parked in cash somewhere, liquid. And I assume that you and your ex have arranged some sort of spousal support, child support, so that you don't have to keep dipping into this $300,000 dollars $400,000 for all of your expenses, that there's hopefully some shared expenses along the way, right? You're not footing all the grocery bills. You're not footing all the costs for raising your kids together. Um, it's a hard time to find a job right now, but if you can find some work, um, I know that's hard with the kids being home too. So scratch that. I don't know. Can you really work right now? Is it realistic? I, I don't know because then you'd have to pay for someone to watch your kids, to teach your kids. Maybe the best thing right now is just to not make any big decisions, right? Just keep your eye out for a job, brush up on that resume, start to slowly kind of rebuild your network, understand where you want to pivot to, what, what jobs are most likely that you can have right now, like the lower hanging fruit jobs that given the fact that you haven't been working for 10 years, that could work your way up towards a bigger job down the line. So that's just something to kind of be working on in the background. But in the foreground, save that money, rent. Banks won't even give you a loan, I think, at this point because you don't have a job. That's the first thing they're going to ask. Are you employed? Number one question. And if you don't have a job, that's not good for you or the bank to be locking yourself into a mortgage right now. And as you said, prices are pretty high in Southern California. Stay put. If you can stay where you're living, um, I don't know if you can, but if you can find a more affordable place to rent, that's what I would do. Right now, everyone's just trying to survive and trying to keep head above water. And we don't wanna feel like we're stuck. We wanna feel like we're making some progress. And let me tell you, having money in the bank for you right now is progress. It is. This, this is substantial money that can change your life, but don't change your life right now. I would just kind of stay educated, keep learning, keep my eye out. I think as far as getting your ducks in a row over the next six to 12 months, it's the following. Parking that money in cash, that's the first thing. Second thing I would say is do start to look at how you're going to move back into the workplace. You know, if you had an, a career network before you quit your job 10 years ago, go back to those people, start looking at job postings, start going on LinkedIn, update your profile. If you need to take some classes online, there are a lot of free classes online that Stanford offers that a lot of prestigious schools offer. You might find a course, even if it's 
a hundred, a few hundred dollars, I would invest in me right now to get myself up to speed. Going back to school is probably not realistic for you right now with the kids and everything that's going on. I'm talking online learning, obviously not going to a school, but if you can find these online courses, you can get them through LinkedIn, through Coursera, nourish your brain, get yourself in that kind of learning mode about work just as much you are about your finances so that once all of this subsides and employers are back in a hiring mode, uh, you'll be able to find a job quickly and you can really hit the ground running. Our next friend here has a question about her student loans. Beth says that she recently finished grad school and had a question about the best way to begin paying off her loans. She has a bunch of loans from grad school with variable interest rates, variable interest rates, and different disbursement dates over the past three years of school. Interest has been capitalized, she says, as I've been in school, though currently at 0% due to COVID-19. Question, does it make sense to pay off the loans with the high Highest interest rates, regardless of the original disbursement date or the loans from the beginning of my program that have the most interest added to the principal. Any insight you have would be very helpful and appreciated. All right, Beth. Well, firstly, I got kind of caught on the word variable interest rate. And I think with anyone who has multiple student loans, in this case, it sounds like I don't know, are they private? Are they public? I don't know. But it's worth looking into consolidating your in, your student loans for a few reasons. One, having one payment instead of three, it's going to keep you a little bit uh, more organized and less likely to forget about a payment and just not feel as overwhelmed with the debt. The other reason I like consolidation is because it locks you into a fixed rate and so your rate can't increase. And if you do have different interest rates and different loan structures, it really does streamline it all. And you have one loan again instead of three. So look at places like SoFi and other lenders that might be able to consolidate these debts for you. I like SoFi, how they differentiate their model is that they will work with you if you have federal and private loans. Remember, federal loans must be consolidated together. Private loans must be consolidated separately. It's very rare to find a lender who will do both, but SoFi has somehow cornered this market and they work that way. They can work with people who have multiple loans from different sources. So that's my first tip is look at consolidating because that could potentially, if not lower your rates, it could at least fix it so that it can't go higher. And as far as which loan to begin paying off first, while you get all that consolidating, hopefully squared away in the future, but in the meantime, what do you do? I think that it's important to consider the interest rate. If you do have a loan that does have a higher interest rate than the others, I would go for the one that has the higher rate simply because that is technically your most expensive debt. That's the debt that you're going to pay the most interest on. My philosophy is always, if you've got a bunch of different kinds of debt and you're not sure where to begin, go to the one with the highest interest rate first. That is technically your most expensive piece of debt. That's the one you want to get rid of before all others. And this is not to say that you ignore any of the other debts. You continue to make the minimum payments on everything. And the one that has the higher interest rate, you put a little bit more towards if you want to get a little bit more ahead of the game. And right now, if you are on some sort of federal plan where your student loans are in forbearance until the end of September, you can still make principal payments. And if you can do that, 
that might not be a bad idea either because uh, that can help you knock down the balance. Some people have been asking me about that. Should I continue to pay my student loans while they're in forbearance? If you don't have a rainy day account, talking at least six months of your expenses in cash in a liquid savings account, don't worry about the student loans that are in forbearance consider that a gift and deal with them again back in October. But if you do have money to allocate to different things and you have capacity to address these student loans, sure, attack those student loans, attack those balances, and your future self will thank you, but it is not a requirement. Next up is Christy, also talking about student loans, but she's close to paying them down. She says, hey, Farnoosh, I'm soon going to be paying off the last of my student loans finally, and I want to have a plan on how to use that $655 a month that I was spending on this debt, where to put it. I want to beef up my retirement. I know that much. And here's some background on me. I'm 36, married with two kids. I work in education. My state offers a pension plan that I pay into. I'll be able to retire around the age of 58, and I'll be taking home 75% of the salary in my highest earning year. I also have a Roth IRA that I do max out. But I'm looking at this $655 in another retirement vehicle, but which one? My state pension plan offers a 401k, no employer match, and a 457 maybe betterment, something else I'm not thinking of. Well, Christy, uh, that's great. Congratulations. Must feel really good to be close to finishing those student loans off. And $655 is a lot of money to work with now. You got some uh, options, right? Must be a great weight lifted off your shoulders. So if your focus is retirement, I'm assuming you do have your rainy day reserves, paid off any credit card debt. If so, then yeah, focusing on retirement is not a bad idea. But it sounds like you're already in a good place. If you've got that pension from your from your school district, from your state, got the Roth IRA that you've been maxing out. You want to do more? Hey, right now, I don't blame anyone for wanting to put more money into their retirement accounts because I'm reading so much about how because of what's happening in the economy, it's going to take a while for us to bounce back. It's going to take a while for us to feel like we're making positive momentum and earning what we were earning in previous years. This is going to be a long recovery. And as a result, retirement target dates will, for many people, be delayed. Not by a huge amount, but if you're planning on to retire at 58, like our friend Christy, maybe it's like 62. Maybe it's more like 63. I have no idea what's going to happen to state pensions. I would hope that they are still going to be what they promise to be today in the future. So work having a workaround, Christy, and doing as much as you can on your own is important. I say this to everybody who currently has a pension. It's important to have also your own retirement stash. You're paying into this pension, but you also should be paying into other sources of retirement income for yourself in the future. And that may be a 401k, a Roth IRA. In your case, Christy, I know your employer does not offer the 401k match, but remember the 401k does offer the tax break. You get the tax deduction. So that might be appealing to you. And if it is, I think the same goes for the 457. That is something that um, might seal the deal for you as far as where 
to go. It's also great because you can make those automatic payments directly from your paycheck. Whereas if you were to open up a brokerage account somewhere, it would have to first hit your bank account and then go into the brokerage account. That extra step, sometimes there's more room for humans to say, well, I'm going to skip this month. But when it's automatic from your paycheck, it is a lot less likely that you'll miss those allocations. Another reason I like the idea of like a 401k or a 457 is because you can contribute more to that than you can in an IRA. So let's say you were to open up a traditional IRA in addition to your Roth IRA, you can only contribute, I think, a third of what you can in something like a 401k per tax year. So if you want to really be aggressive, the employer-sponsored retirement accounts are a better vehicle for that. All right, good luck to you and congrats again on becoming debt-free with those student loans. Big accomplishment. Finally, question from our friend Haley, who is asking about prenups. How do I approach talking about a prenup with my fiance? Is it something I actually need? Everything I read suggests getting one, but how do you talk about this without putting doubt in your partner's head? Hmm. All right. So here's some background on Haley. She provided, she's uh, in her 20s and so is her partner. They've been dating for two years. They both see marriage in the picture in a few years down the road. And at that point, she wants to be able to talk about a prenup. She's an engineer making $60,000 a year. Her partner is currently in grad school and works part-time, but will eventually make about $70,000 a year when she graduates. She says, I am probably the quote-unquote money person in the relationship. I have a Roth IRA. I contribute to my employer 401k. I have a healthy amount of savings. I do have some student loan debt. As far as my partner situation, she has some savings, but no retirement as of now. No undergraduate student loans, but she will have graduate loans. She says, I don't see us struggling for money, but I do see a difference in our financial situation, mainly in our retirement and overall savings. Okay, Haley, this is a great question. I'm really glad that you're having the foresight to ask about this. You've been researching this. It's it's important. I think for all couples, as they plan their weddings, they should also plan their finances. And with that comes a conversation about prenups. It's not something that we like to talk about because it suggests that this relationship isn't going to last. But as I've come to sort of understand and appreciate this, it's not about really like the potential doom and gloom of the relationship, but it's about really being respectful of each other now and being realistic, right? The reality is, is that a lot of relationships don't survive and it's not because anyone's anything wrong. People outgrow each other, circumstances change, life circumstances change. Sometimes you just realize you've grown apart and that's it. And you want to split up and having a prenup it really eliminates a lot of stress and confusion and it also makes it financially better for the two of you. You don't have to like hire attorneys and go through the whole like litigation and negotiating and this is back and forth and time is money when you're hiring lawyers. So if you have a prenup, it's easy, it's simple, it's straightforward. It comes in handy at a time when you don't really want to be dealing with this right now. You just want to refer to the rule book. What was the rule book that you created together as a couple all the way back when? The way that you bring this up to your partner is you just say this. I've been reading a lot about prenups. Maybe you can even throw in a couple of friends who've done this, or you could put in the example of some friends who've split up, who thankfully had a prenup. You know, you want to say, look, obviously I'm not coming from the place of 
concern about our relationship. I'm not concerned that we're going to break up or or anticipating a divorce. However, I think just as we're like, you know, planning all the other things that we want to accomplish, it's important to just have this set aside. At the very least, it's an exercise that's going to get the two of you talking about your money. It's going to force you to talk about your money, your money issues, your money goals, all of it. That's what the the prenup brings up. And I interviewed my friend Ramit Sethi about this. I think it was last year. Look him up. He's been on the podcast a couple of times, but he's talked about this very openly about he and his wife went down this path when they were uh, engaged and and drafting up the prenup and it was very stressful. And so I'm going to just say all of this with, this could be very stressful for you, but it is worth going through it because when you come out on the other side, you can potentially come out even closer. And that's what happened with he and his wife. They realized that as they were going through the prenup process, it was bringing up a lot of financial, emotional baggage for the two of them. And they were having a really hard time kind of, you know, focusing on the the task at hand. And so what they did was they went and had a financial counseling session of a marital slash financial counseling counseling session. It was very cathartic for the two of them. They were able to work through some of their own personal issues and have a mediator well worth the money, he said. And it really helped them to arrive at a place with the prenup that they both felt good and comfortable. And now it's out of sight, out of mind, but it is there just in case. And the other thing I want to just say about this to everybody, and including you, Haley, about the prenup is that the first thing you want to do is understand your state's laws. Where you get married That's the state that's going to dictate the divorce proceedings and how things are going to go in terms of asset allocation and division of properties, unless you have a prenup. So read up on your state's divorce laws. If you're satisfied with how your state will go about de facto running your divorce, essentially, um, great, you don't need a prenup. If you disagree with anything, that's when you want to have a prenup. And absolutely for couples where there could be income disparities, huge income disparities, if one partner owns a business, if, if there are these gaps or these different ways of making money, if one person has far more assets coming into the relationship that they want to protect, all good reasons to have a prenup. These are the things that a state necessarily won't recognize as they won't know how you feel, right? They just have to have sort of this blanket way of approaching divorce proceedings, not the thing you want to be dealing with when you're just trying to move on with your life, right? But Haley, I have to give you a lot of credit because when I was in my 20s, I wasn't thinking about prenups. I think you're very much ahead of the curve and I commend you for that. Good luck to you and your partner. All right, everybody, that's a wrap. I am sorry this is a little bit delayed. You know, I like to publish these podcasts on the dot on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, but given everything that's been going on, I uh, just couldn't. I just could not. But I'm happy that this is not a rerun. This is a fresh episode. These questions all came in this week and keep them coming. You can you can reach out on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. You can email me, Farnoosh at SoMoneyPodcast.com. And of course, go to the website, SoMoneyPodcast.com and send me your questions there. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your weekend is so money. 